point to places. Uh, I got the map out because we're talking about a long-distance miracle this morning. And so I want you to know that God can operate independent of time or space. We saw time last week. We're going to talk about space this week. But as I think about long distances, I think about traveling, I wonder what kind of things are you willing to go long distances for? Uh, my wife and I have a standing joke that the only reason we go on vacation is so that I can go to certain food places and try out new food. For me, uh, food is the thing I travel for. For you, maybe it's a certain view. You know, maybe it's uh, the view from a beach or the view from the top of a mountain. Uh, maybe it's an activity that you like to do. It's the shusting of telemark, telemark skis down a mountain slope or it's um, you know, surfing a wave off the coast of Hawaii. Uh, maybe for you, it's to go see a certain event. Or maybe it's a person that you go to see. Well, for me, it's almost always food. <laughs> so that's why we go. And, and uh, so like whenever we go to Cincinnati, I have to go to La Rosa's Pizza. And I have to go uh, have their delicious pizza with, uh, I don't know what it is, Munster cheese on it, right? And so it's fantastic. We have to go to La Rosa's. Whenever we go to St. Louis, uh, my wife and I started going to a place called The Hill, uh, if you've ever been to St. Louis, you know the hill is where uh, it was founded by Italian immigrants uh, back in the early 20th century, and some of the best Italian restaurants in the world are at the hill in St. Louis, and so we'll go and enjoy that. In Chicago, I have to stop at Portillo's and get a couple of Chicago dogs, right, and then always get the chocolate cake milkshake. Have you had this? You know, this is a chocolate milkshake. People, I'm serious, all right? If you get nothing else from this message, all right, it's a chocolate milkshake with a piece of chocolate cake in it, frosting and all, blended up, and you drink the whole thing and then eat it with your spoon. It's fantastic. If you don't ever, and next time you go to Chicago, I'm telling you, go to Portillo's and get a chocolate cake milkshake. Where, do you have a place that you go that you think, I've got to, every time I go there, I've got to get that food? Do you have a place? Tell the person next to you, do you have a place that you always go, stop and get the food? You know, comedian Jim Gaffigan says, isn't a vacation really just us eating someplace we've never been? Uh, that's what we do, right? We go on vacation. We eat. There's all kinds of travel blogs about food, right? Um, uh, Jane and Michael Stern have been writing road food for about 20 years. Mimi Sheraton released a book last year called A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die. I'm working my way through that right now. Uh, that's my devotional for the year. Many of us are willing to travel for food, right? A lot of us are willing to travel for food, but I think it's safe to say that all of us Almost all of us are willing to travel when it means life or death for someone we love, right? And that's the story we're going to see today. Uh, open your Bibles to John 4 if you have them. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. You can open it up to John chapter 4. It's on page 742 in this Bible, 742 John 4. We're continuing this series called Through the Lens, and we're talking about the seven miracles that are, were performed by Jesus that are captured in the book of John. We know there are more than that, but there are seven that were captured by John. And we're, as we're doing that, we're kind of walking through the life and the ministry of Jesus too. And in week one, we said that when we focus on the miracle, when we focus on the miracle itself, even on the miraculous powers of God, we miss the point, right? But, but the miracle, much like the lens of a camera, is meant to help us better see our subject. And, and in this case, we said miracles are there to point us to the compassionate heart of a loving father. And so last week we talked at a, about a wedding feast up here in Cana, up in the north of Israel, uh, up near Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And if you remember, uh, Jesus turned water into wine at that wedding feast. Well, uh, between that miracle and the one we're going to talk about today, there's quite a bit that's happened, so let's talk about that. Jesus leaves the wedding at Cana, and he travels to a place called Capernaum. It's about 20 miles away. It's he and his mother and brothers and his disciples. Anybody remember how many disciples he's got at this point? 
Five, right? Good. He's got five disciples, and they go uh, from Cana to Capernaum. And by the way, we're wed- led to believe that Joseph isn't around anymore. He's probably passed away. We, he's probably died by the time Jesus is 30. We never see him in the accounts of Jesus' adulthood. Um, Jesus is always traveling with his mother and brothers. Uh, so most likely, Jesus is the man of the house right now. He's kind of the leader of the household, uh, so you'll, you'll see Jesus traveling with Mary and his brothers a lot, but you never hear Joseph mentioned. So they go to Capernaum, and then John, the author of this book, tells us that they stay there for a few days, but then it's time for the Passover. And so they head down to Jerusalem, which is a pretty long and arduous journey, as you can see. Now, uh, the Passover is a celebration that the Jewish people, uh, where they remember a time back in the Old Testament, in fact, in the book of Exodus, where God preserved them, saved them, rescued them out of slavery. And what happened, if you don't remember, is God, uh, the Israelites were captive in Egypt, and uh, God sent ten plagues on the Egyptians to try to release the people of Israel. And every time that Moses, the leader of the Israelites at the time, would go to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let you go. And then God would send another stronger plague, another stronger plague, until the tenth one was that he killed all of the firstborn in Egypt. But the Israelites um, would put blood on the doorposts of their homes, and God passed over the Israelites. And so all of the firstborn of Israel were saved. And so they remember that through a feast called the Passover. And every year they would commemorate that, and many Jewish families would travel down to Jerusalem from wherever they were, wherever they lived. And it was a custom that most families would go at least once in their lifetime to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What we see in Scripture is that Jesus' family goes every year. And that's what we'll see for that. So he goes down, they go down to, uh, they, they leave Capernaum, and they go down to Jerusalem to celebrate that. Now, while he's there, Jesus sees some people in the temple courts outside the temple, and they're selling animals for sacrifice at inflated prices. They're exchanging money uh, and making a profit doing it so that people can buy their sacrifices, and Jesus is infuriated. And so what he does, he goes into the temple, and he fashions a whip out of some leather cords, and he starts driving people out of the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers. Now, this is the first of at least two times we'll see this happen in Scripture during the Passover where Jesus goes. A lot of people think that's the same account. It's not. This is very, very early in his ministry, remember? And uh, this is the first time. So this is not your, uh, the picture that you saw, maybe if you grew up in church, the picture of Jesus hanging on a wall that, where he's smiling and petting a lamb. This is not that Jesus. All right, this is angry Jesus, and he is in the temple. He's turning over tables, and he says, uh, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers, and so he's furious with these people, and we'll see that. Well, while he's in Jerusalem, there's some indication that he does some miracles there. We don't have those recorded for us. Um, none of them are specific, but while he's there, he runs into a man named Nicodemus. Maybe you've seen this story, and uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Which is a, and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, what you have to remember at this time, all of this area where the Israelites lived was actually under the rule of the Roman Empire. But the way the Roman Empire ruled is they would often take over an area and then allow that group of people to still have their own government who were ultimately responsible uh, to the Roman leaders. And so the Jews had their own ruling council, but then they were ultimately responsible to the Romans. That's going to be real important in a minute. But Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council, and so he was a part of the people that decided what, how the Jews would live. And he has some questions for Jesus, questions that nobody else has been able to answer to this point. And Jesus tells him that no one can be saved unless he's born again. In other words, he says, and this is where we get the very famous John 3.16, that God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. 
And whoever doesn't believe stands condemned, but whoever believes walks in the light, light and he's given a new birth, and uh, a birth by the Spirit of God, and that's the only way you can get to heaven. That's what he tells Nicodemus. The only way you can get to heaven, you can't work your way into salvation, which is what the Pharisees were trying to do. The Pharisees are people who followed Jewish law to a T, in fact, so much so that they even wrote their own laws to kind of fill in where the Jewish law left off. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're doing this all wrong. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work your way into this. It's only by grace that you can be saved. And Jesus tells this to Nicodemus. And so Jesus stays in Judea, the area down here around Jerusalem for a while. He's gaining followers. He's baptizing people. He's here at the Jordan. Remember remember who else is here at the Jordan River baptizing people? John the Baptist. And so Jesus is down here in this same area. He's baptizing people. He's gaining followers. And then he decides, because there's a little conflict, that he's going to go back to Galilee, back to this area. And he decides he's going to go through Samaria. Samaria is up here. A lot of Jews didn't go through there because there were some people there that didn't really like. They weren't really Jewish, but they weren't really Gentiles either. And the Jews thought they were even worse than the Gentiles who were the non-Jewish people. And so, but Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria. And so he does that. He goes through Samaria and goes to Galilee. While he's there, he's got a divine appointment with a woman who he runs into at a well drawing water in the middle of the day. And he calls her out on her sin. She says, I don't, he says, why don't you go get your husband? And he, she says, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you're doing is not right. Go and sin no more. And she says, oh, my goodness, I have found the Messiah. <laughs> and she goes back, and she tells the people in this village, and Scripture tells us that almost the whole village comes to believe in Jesus because of this one woman uh, repenting of her sin. And then he leaves Samaria and heads for Galilee, which is where we'll pick up today's scripture in John 4, 46. So a lot of stuff has happened, and we get to this place in John 40, 46, and it says this. Once more, he decided to visit Cana in Galilee. Okay, Cana is the scene of our last miracle, right, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now I want to tell you about this royal official, okay? Because uh, Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, so he was a Jew. He was part of the people who ruled the Jews. Well, this ruling official would have been part of the Roman government, okay? So he would have been over top of that in this area. There was a royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. So the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, back to Capernaum, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. <clears throat> so here's the story of a man with a problem worth traveling for, right? His son is sick. He's got a fever. We see he's on the verge of death. It was 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana, uh, uphill. You didn't know that your parents, when they were kids, lived in Capernaum and went to school in Cana, did you? 20-mile walk uphill. Uh, Capernaum was 700 feet below sea level, right? Okay, so it's a, it's a big walk uphill. Um, and to leave, it, it, it was a big distance 
uh, or it was a big, big journey distance-wise, but it was an even bigger journey from a cultural standpoint, a bigger uh, distance to cross culturally, to leave cushy home life in Capernaum, to travel to the little village of Cana, this nobleman, this royal official, had to humble himself to make that journey and ask for help from a poor Jewish carpenter who, and, and traveling rabbi who he was ultimately over. He was ultimately a, a governor of. Now realize, this nobleman in Capernaum had access to the best doctors, the best pharmacists money could buy. He had the most advanced scientists in the world at that time were part of the Roman Empire. And this man, being an official of the Roman emperor, would have had probably more access than just about anybody. But none of them worked. And so he was forced to go find Jesus. He was forced to go to Jesus. You know, sometimes it's not until God is all you have that you realize that God's all you need. And that's where this man is running into. Anybody who's a parent, uh, anyone who has family that you deeply love, understands why somebody would make this trip 20 miles uh, uphill, probably took him a day and a night, just for the hope of having his son healed. There's nothing that motivates us to action more than pain, is there? C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, we can, even, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, that's what happens to this nobleman, this, this royal official. His pain, his son's pain, his pain over his son being sick has forced him to take action he wouldn't normally take. But he gets there, and what he finds out is that Jesus, well, he's kind of in a bad mood, all right, because he's there, and all these people are around him, and they're all wanting to see him perform a miracle. Remember, where is he? He's in Cana, right? What happened the last time he was there? He was there, and he turned water into wine, and everybody got to see it. And you can imagine people like, hey, Jesus, show me that trick again. Show show us that thing you do with the water and the wine. Now, think about this even. Think about Jesus' brothers, all right, because they are one of the few people that probably knew that this happened, knew for a fact that this happened. And they're thinking, uh, they're doing the math in their head, 180 gallons of the finest wine. I mean, if you did that like once a week, we could be loaded. And I don't mean like loaded. I mean like, you know, loaded in money. Like we could sell all this wine and we could be set for life. And, and then there's all these people around and they're saying, hey, last time you were here, you did a miracle. Hey, you going to do another miracle? What are you going to do for me? What are you going to do? You know, uh, uh, and so this is what's happening. And Jesus is there and he's, he's not in a good mood. Now, it's still early in his ministry. We've only heard specifically about this one miracle, but we know that there may have been more down in Judah. And so the people are clamoring for it. And the royal official probably heard about those. Remember, Capernaum's not far from Cana. And right after the wedding, Jesus and his followers went to Capernaum before they came down to Judah and Jerusalem. So this man's royal officials probably heard about those miracles. But the reputation, what's happening is the reputation of Jesus is attracting followers. It's attracting people to him. He's literally using miracles to help people find their way back to God. That's what's happening here. And so this man was likely not a believer this royal official is, is living in Capernaum. It's likely he was there in the service of Herod Antipas. Uh, this is one of the sons of Herod. So if you remember when Jesus was born, Herod the Great uh, was the ruler of all of this area. And he was nervous about this Messiah being born. And so he killed every boy two years old and under in the Roman Empire, in this part of the Roman Empire, because he was trying to uh, keep this Messiah, this person who might be king, right? That was Herod the Great. Herod the Great had four, I think, sons. And so uh, when he died, his kingdom was split up among these four sons. And there was a lot of 
um, antipathy among the sons. And so Herod Antipas is ruling up in this era. Uh, you may also read uh, Herod the Tetrarch. It's the same guy. Uh, is one of the sons of Herod tried to have uh, one of the sons of, the, of that Herod. This Herod, Herod Antipas, is probably best known for uh, stealing his brother Philip's wife. And so his brother, Herod Philip, who ruled in another area, Herod Antipas, stole his wife, and John the Baptist called him out on it and said, this is not right, what you've done to your brother. And so Herod Antipas is the one that actually has John the Baptist arrested and put in jail uh, because of a woman named Herodias, who was the wife of Herod Philip, his brother. Well, anyway, Herod Antipas um, marries Herodias, and uh, as a kind of a party trick, Herodias says, hey, I want John the Baptist's head on a plate, and John the Baptist eventually gets beheaded for calling out this sin. Herod Antipas is not from a nice family. That's what I'm trying to say here. And this royal official was in service to him in Capernaum. It's fair to say that this family, that this government was hostile to the message of Jesus. And so this nobleman in the service of Herod Antipas was likely not a follower, but you know what? He was desperate. He was desperate, and sometimes God has mercy on the desperate. You know, sometimes said that God helps those who help themselves. And I think I understand the heart behind this statement. It's the good old Protestant work ethic. It calls us to do everything that we can to solve our own problems, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? But that's not in the Bible. You know, the truth is what we see in Scripture over and over again, and what's apparent in this passage is that God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. He helps people that don't have any other place to go. And it says that all throughout Scripture, Isaiah 25, 4 says, For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in distress. Luke 4, 18, 19, Jesus is quoting an Old Old Testament passage. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When we are at our weakest, God can prove the strongest. When we are at our end, it's often where God begins. God helps the helpless. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak, Scripture says. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play. All right? Think about what this nobleman had to endure just to get to Jesus. Imagine this man's struggle. Even before the journey of 20 miles uphill, imagine the struggle, the internal struggle, the mental struggle. Do I leave my son who's dying to go try to find this man who I don't even know if he can help? What happens if he dies while I'm gone? I'll never forgive myself, but I, but I have to do something. So he goes. He, he doesn't know much about Jesus, probably doesn't know any scripture. He may or may not believe that Jonah got swallowed by a fish and spit back up after three days, but he's got enough faith to know that he's got a problem, and I think this Jesus might have the answer. He's desperate. And so he gets on his donkey or his horse or his own feet. We don't know. And he goes. He makes the trip. He does the work to get where he has to be to put his problem in front of Jesus. And that's a great lesson for us, too. And even after that, you know, the 20-mile uphill trek from Capernaum, uh, you know, and here's what he teaches us in that. If you pray for something, be ready to put in the effort. Now, here's what I mean, okay? Sometimes belief takes work, doesn't it? Doesn't it take an effort for us just to believe sometimes? Does does anyone always find it easy to overcome doubt? Do you always find it easy to pray for what you need? 
to take your request and put it before God and say, you know, so many times we say, God, I know this is a little deal, but could you help me in this area? You know, sometimes faith looks a lot like a 20-mile walk. You might hear this and think it's in direct opposition to what I just said. God helps the helpless, right? But you've got a part to play. Is that weird to anybody? God helps the helpless, but you've got a part to play, you know? But it's not. Here's what I mean. This, this man was at the end of his rope. He had no other options. He, he, he finally realized that if something was going to change, it was going to have to be from God. He didn't have anything that he could do. He was helpless. But once he realized that, it was time for him to get his request before God. Right? And so that meant he had to do whatever he needed to do. Now, he couldn't get his son well. Make no mistake about that. He couldn't heal him. He couldn't work hard enough. He couldn't pray enough times. He couldn't do anything to make it work. But he had to make the effort to get Jesus. He was so desperate, he knew that the one thing he had to do was take it to Jesus. Are you desperate this morning? Are you desperate for Jesus to act in your life? See, you can't earn a miracle any more than you can earn your salvation. You, you can't make a miracle, right? You can't manufacture a miracle. If you would, if you could, it wouldn't be a miracle, would it? It would just be what you do. However, sometimes God wants to see if you're serious. And this man was serious. He, he comes before Jesus and he states his request. John four forty nine. royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, what is it about this statement that really turns Jesus' heart? Remember, he's scolding the crowd for wanting miracles. He's saying, you people, unless you see a miracle, you will never believe. And this man says this, and there's something about his statement that turns the heart of Jesus and makes him want to do the miracle. What's the difference with this man? Was it his position of power? Was it, was it the authority with which he asked? I don't think so. Look again at the way he says it. He says, sir, well, first of all, he addressed Jesus as sir. Think about this royal official, this nobleman from Capernaum in service of the Roman government. Jesus is his underling. He could very easily order Jesus to heal his son, but he doesn't. He could have had him arrested and brought to his home, but he didn't. He asked him in a humble way. He addressed him with respect. And then he says, come down before my child dies. Think about the faith this shows on behalf of the nobleman. He honestly believes that Jesus can do something to stop his child from dying. He has incredible faith, knowing so little about Jesus, but trusting that he can do something miraculous because he's heard it's happened before, maybe. You know, don't forget the wedding in Cana, only about 20 miles away. Um, It happens sometimes, doesn't it? When you hear about or see great things that Jesus has done in somebody's life, doesn't it make it easier to trust him with more? I know that's how my faith journey went. You know, I started out, and I wasn't a believer. I wasn't a Christian. And then I started to trust God with, like, this much of my life. And I saw how faithful he was with that. And so I could trust him with just a little bit more, and then just a little bit more. And just a little bit more. I know some of you had those moments where you had that divine revelation and you went from not believing anything to, ah, and the sky opens up and the spirit descends on you and all of a sudden you're like bringing people to Christ your second day at church, you know, and that wasn't me. For me, it was step by step, a little bit of faith. It was a 20-mile walk, baby. But this man had faith. 
This nobleman had faith. And we see that sometimes with, with our stories, right? Your story is important. Your story can help people find their way back to God because you may think you have a boring story, but somebody is saying, you know what? My story is exactly like your story. And so all these things are happening around this nobleman, and he's hearing these things that Jesus is doing, and he says, you know what? I am so desperate. I'm willing to try anything. I've got to get my son before Jesus. Now, the nobleman's faith wasn't perfect. It was limited. I mean, he thought that Jesus had to come down to his home to heal his son. He believed, he, could, he didn't know he could do it over distance. He, he, you know, I love in Isaiah 53, it says, is the arm of God too short? Right? Capernaum was 20 miles. Jesus proved that the arm of the Lord is not too short to act from Cana to Capernaum or from anywhere to anywhere. Jesus proved that the arm of the Lord is not too short. In an instant, he reached across the 20 miles from Canaan to Capernaum, and he said this John, in John 4.50, Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. And if it was the faith of the nobleman that caused Jesus to choose to do this miracle, I think he was justified in this. It says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. A man with probably very little background in religion, probably lots of questions still lingering. But there was something about Jesus that was so trustworthy that he took him at his word and left. How much different would our lives be if we were always willing to take Jesus at his word? How much better would our relationships be if we always took Jesus at his word? How much better would our marriages be? How much better would our financial lives be? How much better would our family gatherings be if we always took Jesus at his word? That's that's what the royal official did. It says he took Jesus at his word and left. And he got more than he expected. Remember last week when we said that God doesn't skimp? You know, he said that he saved the best wine for last. Now, here's another example to prove it. The, the royal official is on his way home. His servants meet him on the road. And the way he asked the question to him uh, is really interesting. He says, at what hour did he begin to get better? I mean, it shows that he was expecting his son to recover the way we normally recover from sickness, right? A little bit at a time. You start to get better and things happen. And, and what process did he go through? But what he found out was the same thing that we talked about last week, that God doesn't skimp, right? So the answer came back from his servants was, yesterday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, his fever left. Boom. It was gone. Just like that. And we're reminded of Isaiah 55, 9 and 10, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, think about the contrast between this miracle and the last one we studied, which, by the way, these are the only two miracles. You may not realize this, but when we go next week, we're going to be in the second half of Jesus' ministry. In the first half, first 18 months of Jesus' ministry on earth, he did two miracles that we have recorded in all of Scripture, and it's these two. And so out of the 34, I think I said last week, that we have recorded, two of them happened in the first 18 months of Jesus' ministry. He's not going around doing a bunch of miracles. But the two miracles, vastly different. The wedding at Cana was a time of joy and festivity. This miracle right here was a time of worry and sadness. It was this man who was desperate for God. He he brought his 
uh, request before Jesus. The wine at Cana was a miracle of ages. It was where God compressed the time it took to age fine wine into a few seconds, right? Well, this one was a matter of distance. God covering 20 miles and what modern medicine can only do at arm's length. But just like the wedding of Cana, the, miracle, the result of this miracle is the same. John 4, 52, 53 says this. When he inquired, the, the royal official, the nobleman, when he required, inquired as to the son, time his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, his fever left him. And then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Again, we see the end result of this miracle is that people believe in Jesus. Now, here's the reality of the world, the life we live. Not everybody gets healed. Not everybody gets their miracle. I mean, even in this moment, we're led to believe that there is a throng of people around Jesus who are clamoring for a miracle. And one of the really bizarre things about healing a man's boy who lives 20 miles away is that nobody in the crowd got to see it. No one except the royal official knew that this happened, right? Not everyone gets healed. Not everyone gets fed. Children die. Friends get cancer. People declare bankruptcy and get divorced. And some of the most lovely, faithful, loving, God-fearing people find themselves in situations that none of us would ever want to be in. In these moments, it's important to remember what Jesus would tell his disciples much, much later. After he died and was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and walked around with them alive after being dead. And one of them still didn't believe, a man named Thomas. And Jesus let him touch his hands where the nails had been and touch his side where the spear had been. And then he said this in John twenty twenty nine says, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you believed Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So here's the question I have for you today. Are you willing to believe without seeing? What if you never get healed? What if the problem is never fixed? What if you never see a miracle? Are you willing to believe? You know, this royal official got a gift from God. The gift was that his son was healed. But through this story, we get a gift too. We get the gift of seeing how this played out. We get the gift. The gift we get is the assurance that God can do that kind of thing. That God is able to do that kind of thing. But what if you're in the majority of people that face trouble in this life? Can can you honestly look at the events in our world today? I mean, disease and hunger running rampant throughout Africa. A serious decline in the morals of our culture. Christians being killed for their faith in the Middle East. Can you look at that and say, God, you're in control. You are still on your throne. And are are you, even in the moments of desperation, are you able to take that long walk to be with Jesus and say, I don't know what you will do. I don't know if you will do anything. I don't even know what I need in this situation, but I have faith and know that you can do all things. And I'm desperate, God. I'm desperate for you to act. And if it takes months or even years or even if it never happens, Jesus, I'm ready to trust you with my life. I want to share with you today the story of one couple, a couple you'll probably recognize. 
who are doing just that. Take a look at this. I'd love for you all to have a seat for just a second. Um, We're thinking about how we end this service and what we do or say, and um, it just really started thinking early this week that there's going to be a lot of people in this room that are in that season. They're in that season of waiting, and they're wondering if if God is going to do anything, or can God do anything in my situation? And so I, I want to pray for you before you go. I'd love for you to, uh, if you're in that season, if you're, if you're waiting on a miracle, if you're having a hard time trusting that God is able or that God will act in your life, I would love for you to stand right now so we could pray for you. Just all over the room, if you're in that situation, just stand. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. Let's bow our heads together. God, so many places in in scripture and in life, you show us your glory. And for those those that are standing right now, God, we're left to wonder why. Why aren't you showing us? God, why, why aren't you being faithful to me? That's what it sounds like. God, for everybody standing in this room right now, I just pray that they would have the faith to see you for who you are, to see through these miracles, through this series, through the things that you're doing in their life, the loving heart of a compassionate father, God, that loves them, that cares for them, that sent your one and only son to die for them. And God, in all of these situations that are represented all over this room right now, I don't know what they all are, but you know the hearts of every person in here. Lord, I just pray that in a new and completely unique way that you would reveal yourself to these people. You would help them to see that you are a loving father, that you do care about them, that, that the plans you have for them are greater than the plans we have for us. God, I thank you that you show us that in scripture through miracles and uh, even through sending your son for us. God, I just pray that you would give us the faith. Just like the, uh, the man who wanted his son healed in another, another part of scripture where he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. God, I pray today for the people standing right now that you would help their unbelief, that you would help them to see that you are able, that you can do abundantly more than we can ask or think or imagine. God, I thank you that you show us the story and, and even the stories that are yet unfinished, that the, the, the end is unwritten, Lord. Just help us to trust in you that you've got the right answer, that you know what's best and we'll trust you with that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're gonna sing one more song before you go. So I'd love if you guys would stand and just sing with us.